Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? <laughs> yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today I'm joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kibbe. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. It's the most wonderful time of your week because you're joining us back here on The Brian Nichols Show. What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of The Brian Nichols Show. I am your humble host, Brian Nichols, and today I'm joined by economist, writer, and senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, Max Gulker. Max's research often focuses on free markets and technology, including blockchain and cryptocurrencies, the sharing economy, and internet commerce. He's a frequent speaker at industry conferences, especially on blockchain technology. Max's research and writing also touch on other economic topics, including governance, competition, and small business. He holds a PhD in economics from Stanford University and a bachelor in economics from the University of Michigan. Prior to AIER, Max spent time in the private sector, consulting with large technology and financial firms on antitrust and other litigation. You can follow him over on Twitter at MaxGAIER. Max Gulker, welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you very much, Brian. It is absolutely the most wonderful time of my week. <laughs> you know, it's, it is the season to be jolly. And I, I'm a huge Christmas buff. I mean, I don't think there's anybody out there who isn't a big fan of Christmas. Um, so anytime I get the the excuse to be very, uh, you know, jubilant and, and joyful and boisterous, I'm going to take advantage of it because that's just who I am in real life. So, I mean, what better way yeah, to do Well, that? you know, I was, uh, oh, sorry, I was, uh, I was a Jewish kid in Indiana, so I have sort of an aspirational longing for Christmas. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me just say, we welcome you with open arms into the, the Christmas community. Excellent. And I, and I, I would expect the same be true for the, uh, the, the, the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Um, I actually have a couple of coworkers. Exactly. Who Christmas is a lot better, actually. So, so I'll take yours. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I wasn't going to say that because if I say that, then that's just not, you know, tactful or, or tasteful. Right. But, I can say it. okay, but it's all good. Okay, so we'll let you say that. So, so with that, Max, thank yeah. you so much for for joining me today. Um, so really, we've been excited to get this going for a conversation because I mean, I've had your 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 supervisor, the the man, the big man, not not Santa, but Jeffrey Tucker on my show in the past, as well as your new coworker, uh, Chloe Anagnos from Indianapolis, as well. Um, so to have you on the show, it's, it's kind of like the trifecta having you to conclude the AIER. Um, <laughs> the co coalition there of you, Jeffrey and Chloe. So with that, I like to give my guests the opportunity to first introduce themselves and really how you got to where you are in terms of not only, um, professional career, but also, uh, in terms of your, your political ideology. Um, so with that, Max Goker, if you could, 
give us the, uh, the, 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 you know, elevator pitch bio. Who are you? Uh, what made you who you are and what makes you tick? All right. Uh, wow. That is, that is a mouthful there. Um, so <laughs> as I said, I, um, I, I think I've always been really lucky to be exposed to, um, um, a lot of different viewpoints and sort of be forced to appreciate how people can come to different viewpoints. Uh, like I said, I, I grew up in Indiana, um, to, uh, was the child of parents who were New Yorkers, kind of post hippie, but then moved to Indiana, um, very left wing. Uh, but there I was a kid in the heartland. And so very early on, um, I was kind of asking myself, well, I like all of these people, my parents and these other people, and they seem to, to all think that, that, you know, they have some point of view that, that, um, is the right point of view. And it seemed like, well, neither, none of these people are delusional or, um, evil or anything like that. Um, and so I, um, I ended up, uh, in college at the University of Michigan, like you said, um, and falling in love with economics. Um, and ultimately, uh, found myself getting a PhD, uh, was lucky enough to be at Stanford and, you know, it, it, it I was exposed, I think, it, it, to a pretty different um, variety of economics than especially a lot of people, you know, broadly in the libertarian camp, although mine was probably much more the mainstream. I was probably at the place where they invented the mainstream, actually. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I I ended up. um you know, going in there thinking I'm going to be this big professor with this body of work with my name on it and all these things and not really knowing what that was. And um, academic research, at least in that environment, ended up really not being my cup of tea, at least at that point. Um, the sort of do something amazing and groundbreaking, but you don't have to talk to anybody and kind of come sort of ask us if you need any help, that type of thing, um, wasn't sort of the right way for me to work. And I ended up in the private sector in New York, um, working on mostly um, expert testimony for economists um, in big uh, litigation, both financial, antitrust, intellectual property, um, had had the, uh, the uh, good fortune maybe to start uh, a job working on financial litigation on uh, in January 2008. So saw a lot of interesting stuff there. And ultimately, I uh, got to the point, it must have been 2014, yeah, it was about four years ago, where um, I had just kind of had it with uh, both New York and with that kind of career, uh, which was great for a while until it wasn't. And I ended up, um, you know, needing a big change and found myself a couple of hours north of there in western Massachusetts in uh, Berkshire County, which is a beautiful place, Great Barrington, where we're located here at AIER, uh, and actually kind of happened upon this place by accident, um, in a way. Uh, I, you know, sort of had friends up here and, and knew I was going to, um, thought I was going to kind of take a little sabbatical and plot my next move. And then lo and behold, here's this economic research institute in this town of 6,000 people that I love. and. Uh, um, that that was, you know, the first in a series of very fortunate steps. Um, and just to backtrack for a second in terms of, you know, I talked about being the child of kind of lefty parents. Um, I would say they, you know, about about equivalent to you know, the kind of current Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. I was always a little moderated from that, I think, just by. 
being an Indiana kid and then my education in economics. But um, at the risk of uh, getting myself in trouble with my my audience and my bosses until about 10 years ago, I would say I was a pretty reliably Democratic voter. And then um, I, I, I think I stepped back one day and I said, I'm not hearing anything from these people in terms of economics and policy that that I like at all. Um, I, you know, think I'm voting the way I am because I don't like some of the Republican positions on more social issues. Um, and and I, you know, ended up kind of losing interest in politics and then sort of going on this slow journey where ultimately um, I think I was exposed to a couple of things that really um, put me on a path to kind of more libertarianism. Um, one was sort of uh, what we call heterodox economics, different approaches to economics and that sort of mainstream, what's called neoclassical economics I learned at Stanford. Um, and, you know, that came in the form, one thing of what's called complexity economics, which is, um, you know, a, a different set of math and a different approach and looking at the economy as this sort of evolving system. Um, and... Actually, really interestingly, similar to that is, I think, what a lot of libertarians know really well, which is um, which really kind of in an, on an intuitive level kind of anticipated some of that complexity stuff that I said a long time ago, which has always really impressed me. Um, and I started learning about Hayek and um, his thoughts on dispersed knowledge. And um, that to me was one of the most important insights I had ever found. And sort of together, those two things said to me that, OK, markets aren't necessarily perfect. Markets are essential. We need markets to um, to take the almost incomprehensible amount of information about what people have, what people need, what people want um, and and turn that into um, what are we going to do to, um, you know, produce and consume and allocate resources? And um, and that, you know, at our we're really at our own risk when we um, take when we say, you know, how can we change markets to do what we want to do? That doesn't mean we can't help people. Um, the other thing I would just say I found um, and then I'll stop talking your ear off is uh, <laughs> the idea that. Um, the idea, I'll, I'll say it um, in a way that paraphrases uh, our president here, Ed Stringham, that uh, we can have governance without government, that um, we can um, we can have institutions, have things in our society that help coordinate our actions, help us work together, help take care of people who are struggling that aren't this sort of top down, backed by the use of force, et cetera, kind of thing that we are kind of stuck in this assumption is is what we need. Um, and and so I ended up here actually joining a little bit before Ed and Jeffrey um, and our whole crew did, but it uh, just came together really nicely. And I think, you know, I I try to bring, yeah, I, I think in some ways it's funny. I'm, I think in some ways I'm pretty radical in terms of what I think um you know, ideally, uh, the way we kind of govern ourselves in society should look. Um, but I think I bring a slightly different perspective and hopefully, you know, challenge some of the libertarian audience to say, you know, maybe the motivation of the people on the other side isn't um, evil or isn't um, entirely misguided 
um, you know, reasons here or how we can do those things better without, you know, sort of a centralized mm-hmm. government. So um, it's it's really I've been so fortunate to. It's funny because last week I actually had um, John Chang from Otters Talking Politics out and, and we concluded our conversation last week um, about that very topic, saying the people that we're reaching out to who are more on the left progressive side of the political spectrum it's not a matter that they approach things in a malicious with an ill intent type of perspective. It's that they just have, they have the similar goals that we do. It's the means that they have in mind as to get to that end end goal. It's, it's very different than what we have because ours is based on voluntary individualistic uh, determination and, and, and voluntarily working with other people versus being mandated by some over uh, overarching um, Leviathan government that's going to to mandate people do certain things. So it's not a matter that they're evil or they're bad. It's just that in their minds, that's the best way to approach and obtain that end goal. And I think it's very important for us as as libertarians or or just folks within the, the greater liberty movement to approach our conversations with folks in that mindset of not trying to show why they're wrong, but just to show them the different approach and help them get to that conclusion on their own. And I, anecdotally speaking, I've seen in my personal life, um, you know, people that were acquaintances or very close friends who I've watched their, the wheels start to turn and saying, well, maybe there is a different way to, to get to the end game. Maybe, maybe, you know, just because the government's not doing it doesn't mean that it can't be done. So that's actually a perfect segue into the, the main topic I wanted to discuss today and that is the the topic of climate change. Now, for those who uh, have been listening to the Brian Nichols show since the very beginning, um, this was actually one of the, the first topics um, that my show tackled. And uh, I had two of my my good lefty friends, um, Derek LeBaron and Paul Riley on, and we, we had a very cordial discussion. Um, they were on the more uh, progressive, I don't want to say progressive, I want to put ideology into this, but they were they're much more into the quote-unquote alarmist camp of saying anthropogenic climate change is happening and we need to do something about it, and by we, collective government. Whereas I have found myself, and and I've definitely evolved on the the topic over the years as more information has come out, I find myself, though, in the agnostic climate change saying, I just don't think we have enough data. And I, I, again, I am not saying this as a climate scientist, and I, I hate it when people do the appeal to authority um, ad hom where they say, well, uh, you, or logical fallacy rather, that you 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 need to, you can't have a conversation about this unless you're a climate scientist. It's like, no, as, as a rational, logical person, I can say, I, I, I personally, anecdotally, don't believe that we have enough sample size of, of data points to then try and put that onto a scale of four plus billion years. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think that humans are having an impact. I think we most certainly are having an impact. I'm just saying to what degree of impact are we having that is causing climate change to happen, number one. But number two, what is that relative to absolute certainty of changes that happened in the past? And I think we're basing a lot of our our looking at the past on speculation. And it's it's educated speculation. It's educated guessing. And I, I respect that, but I just don't think that the the amount of credence that we're putting on the the data that we have nowadays is is 
it, it's not as strong as it could be based on just our limited knowledge. Now, with that being said, I don't disagree for anybody on either side of the issue that there are things we can do to try and lower our impact as a human race on not only the, the greater um, environment, but also to try to do our part in, in lowering our impact on the climate. Um, so, so with that, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of eliminating subsidies for fossil fuels. I'm a big proponent in, uh, opening up the marketplace to allow, uh, innovations that would be alternatives for alternative energy sources to, to open up and expand and, and grow without having government try to pick winners and losers in the industry. Um, so I think a lot of, uh, those in the more, I want to say skeptic, but just kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm agnostic to it. In that camp, we're, we're a little straw man in terms of what we actually believe. Now, you wrote a phenomenal article that was topical back uh, last week covering um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, really big support for this Green New Deal. So to, to give the floor back to you, number one, I wanted you to, if you could, in, in, a, in a word or two, give a, a synopsis of what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal is. Um, number one, but then number two, um, to the, the point of your article, the inconvenient truth about said Green New Deal. Excellent. Um, so, so let me kind of tell you the process that led me to writing that is, um, I was sitting there actually on a Saturday morning, uh, must have been two weekends ago and, um, looking at sort of the Twitter feed of these folks who had, advocated um, this this policy called the job guarantee, which is basically the government gives everyone who wants a job at $15 an hour, a job at $15 an hour. Um, and I had written a long report um, kind of arguing against that and was lucky enough to end up being able to write something in the Wall Street Journal about it. But I was um, I was kind of looking at, at, at the conversation they had been having in the last few weeks and this Green New Deal kept popping up in these articles about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, storming Nancy Pelosi's office, leading these people. And um, I, I looked at an op-ed that some of those academics I was just talking to had written advocating for the Green New Deal, uh, which, by the way, is a massive best estimate, although it's still very amorphous, kind of $700 billion to $1 trillion a year package of um, jobs and subsidies, uh, et cetera, relating to clean energy. Um, and and I, the thought occurred to me because the first thing that it said in this article is we can't let the Earth's temperature, total temperature increase be above 1.5 degrees Celsius. So, so I don't know what we can't let means. Um, we have a public discourse that has absolutely failed us, I think, in terms of climate change in the sense that the debate we keep hearing over and over again is um, the world is going to end if we don't do everything we possibly can now versus it's not real. And mm -hmm. um, because of that, I really, you know, and, and I'm an economist who writes about current policy issues. And even I had no idea if you look at these reports, what are the real consequences that they're talking about? And um, so, uh, you know, I'm super cool. And it was a Saturday and I spent all my Saturday reading UN reports. <laughs> and um, especially this one that came out. Uh, in October. And, you know, it, it, let me just also first say that um, to me, the question of, you know, is it a hoax or is it uh, happening 
that sort of thing. I, 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 your point is well taken about the data. Um, and to me, the sort of like extreme, is it a hoax question? I, is just, I, I don't have an opinion on that. I'm not, that's mm-hmm. not really even interesting to me as an economist. I right. don't, yeah. I, I don't have any means with which to comment on that, but I thought, okay, what, you know, what can I do? I can say, let me actually look at what's in this UN report. If that's true, um, what are our options? What are the costs and benefits of different things that we can do? Um, you know, I can, I can certainly opine on that and educate myself on that. And so I started reading and the, the takeaway really that I found I, you know, to summarize it is, you know, it, taking everything at face value and leaving it at that is that, um, you know, it's the consequences are severe, expensive, um, lots of problems. They're not in all likelihood existential. Um, this is not um, we have to change our entire way of living and economic system right now. It's much more, you know, I say incremental, meaning um, not small or not trivial, but you know, the more we do, the less the consequences are, the less we do, the more the consequences are, are on kind of a sliding scale. And uh, you know, the, the, the framework that the scientists set out is, okay, if we do everything right, quote unquote, from, you know, starting right now, the best we're going to do is a total, what they see anthropogenic climate uh, or temperature increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Okay. That's sort of where we stand today, the best case scenario. They say, if that happens and they list what they believe, uh, you know, are their estimates of the consequences. And, you know, it's a total global cost of $50 trillion, which is, you know, a, an order of magnitude bigger than anybody's used to thinking about. Um, it's, you know, significant droughts um, that much more, many more people are exposed to, um, loss of habitat for animals, those sorts of things. And, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and say, well, how bad are those? They're this bad. But I can generally say they're, you know, things people need to think about. And in fact, that's if that's the best we can do, we also need to be thinking about how we prepare for that, um, not just how we stop it, because that can't be stopped. Um, and and then they say, OK, well, um, if instead we let the total increase be two degrees um, instead of 1.5 degrees, which is, I believe, what was kind of agreed to in the in the Paris agreement. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Then, and, you know, here are the consequences. And it's nothing, you know, there are they aren't new consequences that aren't the case at 1.5 degrees. They're more serious. It's like 69 trillion instead of 54 trillion or something like that. And it's, you know, more loss of habitat and more heat waves and that type of thing. And then after that, they go on to say, what would it take for it to be 1.5 degrees rather than two degrees? Well, they say we can, um, well, they basically say we would have to, I, I wish I remember the quote in the New York Times that kind of summarized, that kind of subbed it up that I, that I put in the article, but it was, uh, you know, we basically have to radically change our economic system on a level that we've never seen before. And, um, you know, and, and it made it sound even sort of more than a Green New Deal. Um, it, although, although that, you know, probably, uh, it is a big part of what they have in mind. So now we have kind of the costs and benefits of acting, at least at the sort of 1.52 degree level. And of course, it could be higher, but the report, 
I think unfortunately doesn't sort of give us those options. Um, and, you know, I, it's really, I think it's an open question for people, but it's a, a question that needs to be posed for people. Uh, you know, I personally don't think, to me, the incremental, the extra consequences of two rather than 1.5 did not seem to um, justify, um, you know, turning our economy and our governmental system into some, you know, radically different thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe me in general, I love the idea of radically changing our governance system, but probably not in the type, type of way <laughs> they're suggesting. Um, and, and to me, that said, you know, if, if everybody, so it, the, the conclusion of my article wasn't, we should do this or we should do that. It was like, let's have a debate where we step away from catastrophe versus hoax. Right. And we actually think about what these consequences are and think about what they mean. And sort of the secondary conclusion was, and I think this is this is what we meant by the inconvenient truth of the Green New Deal. Jeffrey actually wrote that title, so I'll give him credit for that. Um, even though I mentioned inconvenient truth at the end of it. Uh, but um, we. Uh, but if you think basically. We would have, in order to hold the increase at 1.5 degrees, the scientists say we would have to have our emissions globally cut by 50% in 12 years. Um, and that just ain't going to happen. And if the proponents of a Green New Deal really think that legislation like that is going to just be passed and implemented such that we can mobilize that in the next decade or so, I don't see what historical precedent they have for that except maybe the Great Depression, which was an immediate crisis that people saw right in front of them. I don't mm-hmm. think that a democracy can produce those kinds of results, even if one wanted one. So one wanted them. So honestly, if you're sitting there advocating for something like a Green New Deal, you're wasting your time vis-a-vis actual, you know, actual positive impact on, on the problem you're trying to solve. It's politically infeasible. Even the scientists admit they say, here's everything we'd have to do, and it's not politically feasible. So uh, it's essentially almost off the table. Um, At the same time, I think that, you know, I hope that if if the left would, and and I'm probably dreaming already here, kind of let go of um, the world's going to end unless we do exactly what we say right now. That um, that then maybe some people on the other side of the issue could let go of everything you're saying isn't true, um, and we could get to this kind of sliding scale and 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 start to really think about it. Um, I'm pessimistic that that would happen, but um, but that's you know what what ideally should happen, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it, it was it was um, I I, it, I was really glad that I had dug into it because again, I knew kind of next to nothing of the details before. And I'm sure in the grand scheme of things, I still know next to nothing, but, um, but it really, uh, it really let me kind of try to be objective and take maybe a fresh look at the issue. Understood. And, and I think that one of the other arguments that is, I don't even say it's an argument. It's just something I don't think a lot of our progressive uh, friends think about is what's the best means to accomplish the goal? And this, again, we're kind of starting from where we're picking up where we started, is 
is the, the, the best means to address this, to go through um, legislative channels and, and enact government policy? Or is it to open up the marketplace to inspire innovation, to inspire alternatives? Because, I mean, let, let's take, for example, the, the direst of, of predictions from the IPCC, right? Which was, I think it was $69 trillion. Uh, yeah, $69 trillion in the worst case scenario of two degrees increased over, I think it was the next hundred years or so, uh, two degrees Celsius. So let's say that that $69 trillion cost is the worst case scenario. If I'm a business owner and I'm trying to fortify my business and the, the prospects of my my children and my children's children and their children to have successful, fruitful lives, then it would stand a reason that I would want to create an atmosphere. Not and I, it's pun intended, I guess. Um, but to create an atmosphere where mm-hmm. my company will be able to continue to thrive in that right. hundred year period. So right. it would it would stand a reason that then they would go out of their way to start looking for these alternatives. The problem is that a lot of the alternatives are restricted because of government regulations that, though passed right. with very great intentions. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that to quote, uh, paraphrase Milton Friedman, the problem with a lot of government programs is that we look at their intentions rather than their outcomes. Um, that's kind of where we are right now is that the, the government regulations that were passed were passed with the idea, or not even necessarily passed, but mandated by, um, you know, very, uh, various bureaucratic uh, agencies. They were passed with the idea of trying to do these good environmental or climate initiatives. And in reality, they've actually hurt the the very people and the very climate and community that they're trying to help. For example, just let's look at what happened over in California for all the crap that Trump gets. And trust me, Trump deserves a great deal of it. But he had a very (laughs) astute point in saying part of the problem with the forest fire over in California was due to the fact that California's regulations about how they, they deal with their forests created a situation where you have all this, this, these dead trees, these dried out dead trees that were just kindling ready to, to ignite. And there were articles that were, were published months in, in advance from, from more leftist leaning organizations that were even addressing this. But then as soon as the fires start and Trump says something about it, it, they, they dig their heels in because now Trump has put a position on it and we can't let anything that Trump says be positive in any right. shape, shape, way, shape, or form. So um, going back to my original point, I think it's, it, again, if we're, we're trying to find some common ground, which which is always the goal of my show is to find common ground with the folks on the other side of the aisle. I think mm. to your point, it would be good to look again at what the potential negative economic consequences are, number one, but then to say, okay, mm. well, then how do we address that now? Through a more common sense approach. And I think you, you were very astute in your, your article and, and obviously a, a very well succinct article that you wrote there can't be addressed in a 30 to 45 minute podcast. But, um, and I'm obviously going to include the link for the, the folks here in the show to listen or to go back and read because it is a, a phenomenal article. Sure. But really the point is we have to have very honest and open conversations with each other instead of digging yeah. our heels in to say, how do we approach this? Number one, but number two, what is the end game? What is the goal? Is yeah. it to actually inspire new technology that would require the, the ability to have research and development? Or is it to just enact more government policy that, and, and this has been, I think, the underlying uh, concern with a lot of folks yeah. in the more climate skeptic camp is that 
they see this as a means of trying to use government and then use this this boogeyman, and I'm using this very loosely, the boogeyman of climate change Mm. to then enact government policies that are going to be more of the the quote-unquote Marxist policies, right? Where government is going to have its hand in small business, large business, how you're doing, um, you know, how you're doing your, your green energy investments. Um, and, and it's going to cripple these, these economies. And then they're going to end up using that money for quote unquote, social good, social change, instead of actually addressing the real issue. Yeah. I think that, I think that's where a lot of the, the concern right. and the angst comes from. Yep. Um, can I just add uh, a couple of things to that? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I first of all want to make sure um, that people listening kind of have one thing straight, which is uh, it, it, it could be more than two degrees, uh, but the scientists, unfortunately, didn't do the same analysis that they did for 1.5 and 2 at 2.5 and 3. And it felt to me like that was a strategic type of thing to sort of fork close those as acceptable options. And, you know, really, if we're going to talk about this openly, those are the kinds of things we need to know once again. Um, it, it, at, at more 30,000 feet, but but very much um, related to what you're saying, um, I would say that if I have one goal for the rest of my career um, in terms of communicating with people about, you know, a whole range of kind of policy issues, it's really to to get everybody to step back and kind of kick the tires on the assumption that we all in some ways walk around with that um, if there's a problem in society if there's a problem with the world the right and really the only way to fix it is ba- is the nation state is um, is our national governments um, and I think that it, it, that's obviously something that progressives walk around with. I think that even libertarians or conservatives often, even if they don't realize it, are walking around with it when they do things like, um, oh, that's not that big. A pr-, you know, uh, it, it's oh, oh, they want to ban public straws where we're going to tell or plastic straws. Sorry, they're going to tell we're going to tell you how great plastic straws are or um, it, it's this. um it's this, uh, this isn't a problem, um, rather than here are ways other than, um, our federal government of fixing that problem. Well, it, and I think, it, I was gonna say, it, it almost, well, yeah. it, it almost feels like it's this whole mindset of owning the libs. Like a lot of, and I, I honestly, I, I can't say this is all Trump's fault because it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, the mindset that a lot of people in the more politically right leaning camp have gotten to as of late has been not a matter of a policy or principle, but really a matter of what can we do that will piss off the other side. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I'm not going to try to attack an organization, but like you look at Turning Point USA and that's mm-hmm. kind of become their shtick. It's like, right. how can we own the libs today instead right. of actually saying, well, yeah, plastic straws aren't necessarily a good thing, right. but instead of banning straws, let's look for alternatives that are better or maybe something that's, you know, biodegradable. I mean, heck, I know metal straws are a big thing that's going on right now. Like, <laughs> things like that. So, th- there there are alternatives. It's just we have to stop getting this mindset of trying to win. Our, I mean, right. uh, going back two, two episodes ago uh, with Mark Clare from Lions of Liberty, we got to stop this mindset of trying to win arguments and actually try to right. win people over to with, with our positions and our, our – our, well, the, it really comes down to win, arg- or win converts, not arguments. Win them with – 
our our ideas and our, our beliefs and then put those ideas and beliefs into, into action instead of just you know trying to to own own the other side mm-hmm. um and 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 I think you get kind of getting specifically back to the climate change issue because this is a great example you know we it, it's the fight over government policy is all or nothing you know in theory either you win and you get everything you want or you lose and you get nothing you want it's and zero sum you know, we, I, I just got done exactly and and, and i i just got done saying that that's you know it's it's not realistic that what that what the left wants here is going to happen so then you think about well what if um what if as individuals you know concerned people and i think people of all uh persuasions could could be interested in this you know concerned people along with businesses and governments all started contributing money to um, and, and this is just, you know, an example I'm cooking up, but it's sort of a venture capital type of fund um, that that is looking for innovative ways to, you know, a, minimize the impact, like you said, but also uh, prepare us for you know, what's what, you know, is inevitably going to happen. Um, and, and I had looked and like the the you know, venture capital and kind of clean energy technology and in, in that whole sector last year was like $5 billion or something. And that's a fraction of, of what um, people were talking about spending on the green new deal. And you know, it, it, if people started, um, it started doing this privately and voluntarily, that's a non-adversarial, you know, solution. That's somebody's not going to stop you from doing that the mm-hmm. way they're going to try to stop you uh, from the government. And, and, and there are, of course there are problems with that there. And, and, free riding and right. and whatnot but um i think those are kind of creative solutions that we need to look for i wrote something a while back about you know i said what if um everybody who voted for hillary clinton or bernie sanders or took the money that they were going to pay extra in taxes under their tax plans relative to trump's tax plan and just pulled it all together. I'm not saying they should necessarily mm-hmm. pull it all together, but if they did, they would end up with a charity that had a greater annual revenue than the top 50 charities in the U.S. combined. <laughs> I, 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 lo- I love that people don't realize that, you know, when they're like, well, I should pay more in taxes. It's like you do realize yeah. that the Treasury doesn't have a limit on how much you can give every year, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, if I do it. And nobody else is. That's not fair. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. So you're gonna, yeah. you're gonna, you're gonna preach a how how it's so important for people to give more. And then when you have the chance to voluntarily do it, you're not gonna do it because nobody else is doing it. It's like, hmm, maybe, maybe yeah, your ideas aren't as great as you think they are if they aren't done uh, in a voluntary manner without the use of, of uh, a government to to force people to do something that you you want them to do but they don't want to do. And we live in this technological network society now where so this is you know it, it, talking again about you know, you know does does the nation state have to do this um it, we're now in a place where coordinating that kind of voluntary giving is a lot easier than it used to be and you know it's done every day with kind of gofundme campaigns and personally i think you know a single charity with that much revenue is kind of a scary thing but it doesn't have to be a single charity and it doesn't have to um and and, and any of that and you know, I would love uh, to um, to talk to the left a little bit more about, I think, why some of those voluntary solutions and why some of those more kind of bottom up um, non-central government institutions could accomplish the things they want to accomplish that I want to accomplish really 
a lot better than um, their solutions, I think, which would do a lot more collateral damage than they would actually help. Yep. And um, I mean, it's funny because it goes right back to one of your your main um, focuses is focusing that on people doing cooperative, um, you know, cooperative. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cooperative uh, exchanges um, where right. like, 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 for example, like Uber has turned into one of the largest ride sharing organizations and it didn't exist 10 years ago. And that, that, that happened because there was a need in the market, Uber and well, right. the, the founders of Uber found the, the need, found a way to, uh, to meet the need. And then they were able to capitalize on it. I mean, that's, that's the way it works. Right. So if there's a need as much as there, the people are saying in terms of, you know, the economic climate or, or rather the, the, uh, the overall climate for the, the, the world, then there's going to be someone who's going to see that as a means to capitalize their, right. their, their own answer to the solution or to the problem with their own solution. Right. Um, and, and we don't even, so, I'm, I'm sorry, no, we don't ahead. even need to, uh, it, that that can be uh, that can be market driven, but also I like to think that in a society where we get used to there being less central government, we have cultural change where um, where a lot of those things can happen kind of from the bottom up. Um, that right now is being crowded out by yep. um, by the federal government. Um, I. You know, I, I always joke that like everybody hates the word libertarian and no, I want to be a liberal or I want to be an anarchist. And I was, if I had to pick, if I got to pick the, um, the, my, my own personal term, I would be an anarcho cooperatarian. <laughs> that's a mouthful. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I don't do it. See, I think Dave Rubin's kind of hit the, uh, the nail on the head in his classical liberal, um, because mm-hmm. it, it peaks the ears of people on the left who identify as a liberal. They're right. like a classical right. liberal. What's that? And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's what liberals used to be before the right. left co-opted the word to then fit progressive ideology. That's what it used to be. Yeah. Um, and then they're like, oh, maybe I'm a classical liberal too. And it's like, well, maybe you are. But anyways, <laughs> I digress. We're, uh, we're, we're coming up to the point in the show where I like to, to start wrapping things up. Yeah. Um, so, so with that, to, to kind of summarize the, the, the in- inconvenient uh, truth to, the, to the, the Green New Deal – Max, if you could give us kind of, um, you know, a a little elevator pitch for folks to, to walk away with. So when they're talking to their coworkers, they're talking to their friends and family about this very, very, very polarizing issue. What can people say um, to to these folks to, number one, articulate the idea in, in a concise manner, but two, to actually make people think and start to look on their own beyond the talking points that's being promoted by the more alarmist folks on the left? Right. I would say in all likelihood, the consequences are real and substantial. They are not um, existential to the point that we have to do everything possible um, and change everything right now or we're all going to die. That means we can look at the issue like we do any piece of economic policy with costs and benefits. And, um, and, and just secondly, that uh, the the sort of massive uh, federal government intervention that people want is probably not even feasible to work in the time frame it would need to work in in terms of actually you know getting the legislation passed and and um, and mobilized and so um, it really is a place that's ripe for looking at private and voluntary solutions and innovative ways of doing that. Awesome. All right, sir. Well, this is the point in the show where I like to uh, to do some some fun wrap up. So you are an Indianapolis Colts fan, and as a Dallas Cowboys fan, I must say 
Uh, I hope your team sucks this coming weekend because <laughs> the Cowboys are, are playing. We're recording here on on yeah. <laughs> December 11th. So um, just just heads up there. But if you could give uh, my audience some, some fun facts about you, maybe something quirky about you, um, something that maybe you, you haven't discussed in other programs that uh, people can get to know you as a person better. Right. Um, so uh, the, the, there, there's, there's a good chance that we'll suck this week. Um, it, you know, so. it, it, it's I I follow the Colts and I love the Colts. It's, we had, you know, over a decade of Peyton Manning. And it's like when that gets yanked out from underneath you, it's just the exercise becomes a lot sadder. <laughs> but um, I so, yeah, I'm probably one big walking quirk. You know, I'm an economist I, with, with all that implies. Um, I would say uh, my two really kind of biggest passions of when I go home, you know, if I'm not with friends or anything like that, um, you know, I'm generally pacing around my apartment with my headphones on either listening to music, um, or listening to history podcasts. I have this sort of, um, I have this sort of handicap as, as, uh, you know, academic style researcher that, um, (laughs) I don't I, I, I sitting down and reading thousand page books um, often doesn't leave me with a lot. I remember I'm more of an auditory learner. Uh, I like people either reading or talking to me. Uh, but um, I so I would say, um, you know, I, I love learning in general about history. Uh, I thought I knew a lot about history from all these podcasts. And then we hired uh, Phil Magnus, who's one of my colleagues um, and uh, who's a historian and you know it, it's just it, 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 pe- people either think I'm the funny guy or the guy who knows a lot about things and with Phil I'm definitely the funny guy so. <laughs> awesome well listen Matt I, I Max I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to join the show today I know you're incredibly busy um there with the I mean heck Jeffrey Tucker keeps all the folks at AIE are very busy. Hey, you know, um, let me let me just say real quick. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, you know, people ask me what it's like to work with Jeffrey, and you know, first of all, he's every. If you only know him from his writing, he's every bit the uh, kind of unique human being that you would that you would assume he is. But um, <laughs> you know, people think of Jeffrey as this sort of writer and speaker and kind of poet of anarchism, and and that's all true. But that's really 10% of what Jeffrey does. He's a manager extraordinaire with social media with this exciting initiative in book publishing that we have. And, and along with Ed Stringham, especially in the last year, our work has really paid dividends. And it's, you know, I can't imagine um, how it could be more exciting here right now. Jeffrey's a great guy. And I, and I wish you, Chloe and Jeffrey, nothing but the best over AIR and the rest of the team, obviously. Um, you guys are doing great work over there. Um, so please keep up what you're doing. Uh, I know I'm excited to have not only yourself, but Chloe and Jeffrey on again in the near future. Um, so with that, Max, thank you so much again for, for joining the Brian Nichols show today. Um, and, and with that folks, if, if you're interested in learning more about Max, uh, you can go over and, and find him over at AIER, uh, again, Max Gulker, or you can follow him on Twitter at Max G A I E R. Um, and I'll obviously include the links not only to Max, uh, AIER page, but also the link to the inconvenient truth about the green new deal article and Max's, uh, his link to his, his Twitter page. But with that, Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed today's episode of The Brian Nichols Show, please take a minute and go ahead and share today's episode with your family and friends. And as always, you can go ahead and follow me on social media at Facebook and on Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. And the way we keep uh, producing this content, guys, that you enjoy is through uh, your, your help. So Patreon at B Nichols Liberty. And if you want to make a one-time PayPal donation, 
head over to thebriannicholsshow at gmail.com for that one-time PayPal donation on paypal.com. That is always, folks, it's Brian Nichols signing off here for The Brian Nichols Show with Max Gulker from AIER. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.